We've gathered here tonight, around the fire, as people of all lands have gathered for thousands and thousands of years before us, to share the light and to share a story. An amazing story, as old as time itself, but still being written. Hello everybody, uh, Chris Honeywell here, and um, this is the first episode of Two True Freaks Storytellers. Um, this is sort of a catch-all show that will basically be for those things that fall into the category of it's a long story. Um, it may be the answer to a question, it may just be amusing stories, and uh and uh, any of you who are familiar with our podcast know that Scott and I talk about uh, stuff in our childhood and stuff like that. So a lot of that stuff is going to end up in here where we can, instead of, you know, just sort of um, talking about an incident or something specific, we can go more in depth into it and explain it. And uh, this opening episode is just going to be me. And uh, I'm sort of doing it out of necessity because... I just don't want to tell this story over and over again, and I've been waiting for a while to tell this story. This is a, it's a good one, for the most part, <laughs> um, and it answers the question why I won't be your friend on Facebook, because uh, um, you know most of you that are listening to this probably have not been friends with me on Facebook, because. Um, you just haven't <laughs> because I haven't had many friends on Facebook. I had friends for a while, but I pretty much d deleted all of them and uh and now, you know, um a lot of people maybe have noticed that I'm gone from their friend site or they've listened to the show and we've talked on, you know, in on the forums and made friends and stuff and uh so naturally I I do have a Facebook account. And it's not in my name, it's in the name Arthur Ratnick. And I sort of set it up so that we could do a, a group site for Two True Freaks. And, uh, but anyway, you know, I'll have people asking to be my friend on Facebook and I have to turn them down. And, which is awkward <laughs> because it seems like a diss pretty much. But now I'm going to explain why, <laughs> if you ask me to be your friend on Facebook, I won't be your friend, except for a few um, exceptions, and uh, we'll find out what those exceptions are soon enough. In order to uh, start the story, we're going to have to go back, back in time to about, oh, around the turn of the century, 2003, 2000, late 2002, perhaps, somewhere around there. It was, it was probably in the winter because that's when most of this computer shit starts is in the winter when you're locked up in the house. And around that time period, um, you know, I had gotten my first computer, which was a, at the time, really big fucking macked out uh, PC that I had taken a friend who knew a lot about computers to like a computer show and built up this huge 
you know, at the time, very fast, very strong computer for relatively cheap because, you know, he knew how to put it together. So we just bought all the component parts. And I was using it mostly for um, put it, um, doing video editing and uh, stuff like that. And at that point, not really doing much internet-wise. This is the time before YouTube and, uh, you know, stream before streaming video really worked too well or too quickly. So I didn't spend a lot of time online. I didn't do any instant message sort of thing. And I just sort of stayed away from stuff like that. And uh, never did any online gaming or anything like that. I maybe used uh, Skype two or three times. But at that point, Skype worked for shit. And uh, was just sort of a, a novelty. All all the fun stuff at that point was sort of a novelty that didn't really work too well. So I wasn't interested in all that. I was, you know, my computer was a, a tool for media. Around 2002, 2003, my my roommate was getting very interested in uh, in a website called Friendster which had just started up and uh, I would hear her talking about it all the time she's saying you gotta get on Friendster so you can be my friend on Friendster and well what whatever you know and she would explain it to me it's a site and you can go on and you meet up with all your friends and you can build this network of all the people you know and I'm thinking well I've already sort of done that in something called real life so you know what's What's the point of it? I don't know. It doesn't sound like anything I'm interested in. She's like, you could find all your old friends from high school. And I s said, mm, well, uh, that's cool, but maybe I don't want to in a lot of cases. So, well, you know, needless to say, I guess I'm saying what I'm saying is I was very uh, standoffish and doubtful that it could be anything amusing to me at all. But she would pester me and pester me. And after a while, I started thinking, well, you know, I mean, she has nothing to gain from pestering. Maybe she sees that there's something that I would get into in this. So I go on to Friendster and I'm I'm looking around on it and I make a profile for uh, myself. And uh, not with my real name. I, I think I put the uh, name Arthur Ratnick on it. And uh, I just start looking around. And I start noticing a lot of the people on Friendster, despite what it said in like the terms of condition and how, you know, when I was signing up and it was saying how it worked and all that, um, it was very specific in saying, you know, you had to use a real picture of yourself, you use a real name, no pseudonyms, you know, it, it, it only wanted real um, information because... Technically, it was, well, not even technically, it wanted to be a dating site. It wanted to be a place where you had your circle of friends and you could find people within your circle of friends or find people branched off your circle of friends that would supposedly share interests in you, with you, or you know, would be someone that also your friends could vet for you and say, oh, yeah, you've been talking to so-and-so. Yeah, I know her. She's really cool. Or whatever. You know, it, he, the, it was intended to be a dating site. And and that was another one of my initial standoffish reasons is I'm just, I have no interest in meeting and dating anybody off the Internet. It's just, it just seems to be a, 
not a beneficial <laughs> it just doesn't seem to work out it just doesn't seem to be anything i'm interested in so i was like i don't you know even if you're just going on there whatever it just seems sort of weird if you're signing up for a dating site and you don't want to date anybody and i don't want to lead anybody on or whatever but then i started thinking well i can mess with people because i'm not above that i kind of like doing that um and i've sort of made it my life mission in a lot of ways to mess with people so so anyway i'm I'm looking around on friendster and and just sort of you know checking around the site and and it's truly addictive to look at someone's friend list and say oh and go on to this person and branch off it was very novel at this point in time it's just sort of you know taken for granted but then it was a very novel idea and uh I kept seeing that there were profiles up there that were TV characters. Um, I saw a lot of like Chewbacca, Han Solo, and uh, so of course the the first thing I did was make friends with all the Star Wars people. And uh, for the most part, you know, someone would put up a profile of Chewbacca, and every once in a while they'd put up a little message and said "wrong" or whatever, and ah, ha ha ha. But there was this guy named Han Solo. And Han Solo was a diarist, and he wrote his diary as if he were Han Solo, who was just a regular guy hanging out with his best friend Chewie and dating Leia and having frank conversations about the dating in and outs of Leia or Chewie being a pain in the ass or whatever. It was very, very well written and uh, just hilarious, and I found myself really enjoying it. And I'm like, you know, this guy's really got a great idea. He's He's playing Han Solo, but he's really not playing Han Solo, but he's making something very entertaining, and I found myself checking every day to see if there was a new diary entry, and, uh, you know, and there were some great, there were hilarious, you know, a lot of hilarious entries where, you know, Chewie, of course, would be talking about her because he could speak Wookiee, and she wouldn't understand him, and, you know, Leia was always saying, I know he's talking about me, but, um, so I, I, I became really intrigued with that idea, and then I thought, you know what? I have an idea. Instead of being myself or a, a, a character from something I like or, you know, a kitty cat. There were a lot of people who were putting up profiles of their pets and stuff like that. I thought, I'm going to be an abstract concept. And what abstract concept would be more fun than pure evil? And I think... I. I got the idea from uh, the movie uh, Time Bandits where, you know, uh, I don't know if they ever called the guy pure evil or or said um, the words pure evil in it, but that's what I got out of it. You know, there's a scene at the end where there's concentrated evil. I know they say that, and, and the kid goes, Mom, Dad, don't touch it. It's evil. And they blow up when they touch it, of course, which they do immediately after he says it. So I don't know where where I got pure and evil. Those words are used a lot, but I thought, okay, I'm going to be pure evil. And I did a little, you know, a, a Google um, picture search, and I came up with um, this painting that... An, artist I think in New York City had done that was just a red background with in block letters on it evil 
and I started using that as my as my avatar. And later on, I'd I'd you know photoshopped it to say pure evil to make it more my own and to make it more accurate to my name. So I had so it was awesome, just this elegant red pure evil. And what I would do is I would make friends with serial killers, you know, Ted Bundy and Charles Manson and stuff like that. And people would see the pure evil thing and they would say, hey, can I be your friend? And I would say, you can be my friend. But in order for me to accept a friend request, you have to tell me something evil you did. And if I like it, you can be my friend or whatever. And I would start doing stuff like that. Well, I would start collecting all these, you know, collecting them and and connecting them to whoever they were, all these evil stories. And then I would find their friends and I would say, hey, did you know, you know, your friend Chuck strangled a cat one day, you know, or that he has the hots for your girlfriend or something like that and just started stirring the shit, like acting in a pure evil manner, using whatever information I could find on people to just <laughs> cause, be a troublemaker. And um, it didn't really work out much on a serious level, but on a comedic level, it was working out really well to the point of where, you know, there was lots of back and forth between people. And I would, um, you were only at that point, all this whole like friend requests and network of friends stuff was brand new. And I think Friendster only let you have, you know, maybe 100 friends or 200 friends, something like that. Not, it was in the lo- a low number of friends is all that you could have. And I would fill up my, my list of friends rather quickly. I think within the first three days on Friendster, I, ha- I was up to the maximum level of friends. And I would start saying, hey, look, if you don't send me a good story or give me a good reason not to delete you, you're out of here, and I'll get somebody who's more evil in here. You know, I don't I don't need this. And then to the people who remain my friends, I would be like, hey, if someone's messing with you, come to me, and I'll start sending, you know, hilariously evil letters about what I'm going to do, and I would pick fights with people, you know. This was before I knew what the meaning of the word troll was. And I would, I would basically troll the hell out of people and... Um, one day it's going to all be a book. I've kept record of almost every, every back and forth. And, um, you know, they were getting pretty crazy. And at the same point, pretty goofy and dumb. And here's, here, like, I'll, I'll give you an example here. All right, this is page nine of my, my transcripts. And at this point, you know, I was just having a lot of fun. It was like a little journal that you'd keep every day. And then you'd check up to see what everybody else was saying. And I had a lot of fun. I had one guy who was playing Jesus, and he was hilarious. Um, there was uh, Queen Borg and a very intelligent guy who will figure into the story a lot more in a little while named um, Roy, who was playing Roy Batty from um, uh, Blade Runner, Rutger Hauer's character from Blade Runner. And... Um, well, anyway, I was also friends with a General Zod and Ursa and, you know, the whole, all the Phantom Zone villains were up there, but Zod was the loudmouth of them. And, uh, and Ursa would, <laughs> would look for guys and like, 
she had all these guys as friends and then she would kill them one by one she would say i choose you for my boyfriend and then after a while she'd be like i tire of you and then he would disappear off her and she would talk off her friend list and she would talk about him in the past tense and and all that and take on another mate who would end up dying well anyway zod would go on and you know do his rule the world thing and zod and i had gotten into a quote-unquote fight earlier on and i had won this fight where zod had decided to pay fealty to pure evil since pure evil def you know zod had the pure evil in him but i was still his master well turns out this other guy decided he was going to be pure evil too and um not very well and and of course word got back to me so i started you know started in on this guy you know this imposter how dare he he, uh, you know, and of course, pure evil sort of was a combination of every Bond villain and Doctor Doom, you know, just that sort of bellicose, you know, evil, evil, egocentric talk. So, uh, so I find out General Zod, who's my friend, is also friends with the other pure evil. And uh, that was not going to do. Anybody who was friends with both of them, I was, you know, I gave them an ultimatum. ultimatum. So here's my letter to, uh, to General Zod. Duplicitous Zod, for your crimes you have been sentenced to the Phantom Zone for such a time as I, pure evil, deem fit. If you renounce the false evil and crawl back, we may forego the kryptonite enema. I am disappointed in you, Zod. I expected so much more. Usually I send a lackey to inform a friend of deletion, but I wanted to do this one myself. Goodbye, Zod. So Zod writes me back. Why do you say this to me when you know I will kill you for it? Your request has been noted, my vassal. I have decided to acquiesce as well as make you ruler of Australia once I again assume command of planet Houston. Now, that's just stupid. (laughs) But it's kind of amusing, and at the time it was really amusing. It it may not seem as much today because stuff like this sort of happens all the time, but at the time, I was having a riot with this. But also, at the same time, I was getting some pretty disturbing um, emails of, you know, somebody described running over a dog, and, and, you know, a lot of it was just dumb shit that somebody made up. But other shit, I, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it had something about it felt, you know, real. So there were people who were actually, you know, confessing some pretty dark shit at the same time. There there was a lot of philosophizing and talking and joking around. And um, meanwhile, I had made friends with this guy, Roy Batty, who was, um, you know, a replicant. And I thought that was a very witty thing to be on, on Friendster. You know, uh, it, it was as a fake character. I think I thought it was a very smart sort of symbolic thing to be a replicant, and especially the rebel replicant. And um, he was, you know, he was sort of not really humorous. He was more of the guy who was looking at this from an analytical point of view, and you know, the the social ramifications of friendster because I'll, I'll I'll also say I haven't said this up to this point but everybody was very excited about friendster at this point everybody involved with it whether they were using it as a fake profile or not was going this is a very 
good idea. Whoever came up with this, it's a work of genius because it's so flexible. You know, you could get on here and you could look for a date or you could do you could use it as art. You could use it as a a manner of communication through art or or an ex, you know, playing with the the nature of your personality and your, you know, your existence and your reality. And he was the guy who would who would put that into words and would write it in a sort of very very terse an analytical style and he was just a very engaging person he was very very um, interesting to talk to he came up with a lot of really good ideas and insights into things he also was sort of the only guy at that point who was really paying attention I was just sort of on there having fun so one day he was you know he was just sort of looking at profiles and um, he thought to himself yeah, I wonder who made this because there's no name or any person to contact or really there wasn't I don't think there was really any way you could contact Friendster at all. So what he did was he looked for, you know, user number profile number 00000001 and he found this guy named Jonathan Abrams. And he looked at Jonathan Abrams' friend list and noticed a few of the people on his friend list and Jonathan Abrams himself were also in pictures on the opening page of Friendster when you'd sign in. There was a little graphic of a bunch of circles with people's heads in them that were all connected. And so he deduced correctly that this must be the guy who... um who started Friendster. So he looked at his profile and he wrote me and he said, hey, I think I found the guy who, who wrote this program. And I said, really? That is awesome. Um, and he's on here and he said, yeah. And I said, well, that's really cool because so I could go be friends with him. And I went and get, sent the guy a friend request and I sent him a really nice email saying, hi, I hope you'll be my friend. Um I think this is an incredibly wonderful thing you've cooked up here and I think it's going to be very useful in the future and I think it's going to evolve into one of you know the big deals of the internet. I think you've really come up on something really good, you know, it's something beyond like the message board or a forum or something. It was it was something more. It, it was, a, in a way, addictive, and it was very, very adaptable and and useful. And I basically just kissed his ass up and down and said, will you be my friend? And I went to bed with a smile on my face thinking, that's so cool. I just wrote the guy who who made Friendster, you know, this, this web genius. And I get up the next morning, and I go to sign into Friendster to check up on everything, my profile is deleted. Gone. I can't sign in. It won't let me sign in. I have no idea, you know, what has happened. And uh, um, I get my roommate to sign on and talk to a couple of our mutual friends. And yes, they determine we don't see you anymore. Your profile's gone. You're not on our friend list anymore. You're just gone. So I check my messages. I have no messages no emails or anything. I'm just gone. 
maybe anybody who's had their MySpace account hacked or something can identify this, but it was very disappointing. I was, and then and then I started thinking, really, did I disappear because I asked this guy to be my friend? Did he get me kicked off the site? You know, I have no idea. Um, I certainly was breaking the terms of use of Friendster by being pure evil and not being you know, myself, but come on, you know, he could have at least said, Hey, thank you. But you know, I would really appreciate it if what you would do was, you know, be a real person. Cause this is what I want to do with, this is what I envisioned for it, but nothing just gone, wiped out. So I'm pissed now. So I get myself a new profile, you know, get a new you know, get myself a Yahoo account and put up a new profile and uh, start setting about regaining all my friends, all my fakesters again. And uh, the way you could find somebody there is you would get their email address. So we all started exchanging email addresses in case we would get kicked off because after that, people started disappearing. You know, one day you would wake up and giant squid would be gone for a while until they'd made another profile but um or sushi or jesus or somebody would disappear and it was sometimes they wouldn't come back sometimes they would be just sort of pissed off enough okay i can tell when i'm not wanted and they wouldn't come back so we started getting kind of pissed about this so i write jonathan abrams again and say hey i'm back listen don't kick me off kick me off but Tell me what's going on first. I'd like to know what what the problem is because you're you're kicking people off your site, but we're your users, and you know, at least give us an explanation or or some sort of thing. And uh, well, you can guess what happened next. I was I was cut off again. So now I'm fucking steamed, steamed, and uh, so I think about it. And then I come up with a little plan. I think, okay, they can delete my profile, but what if there's ten of me? And what if every time what? And 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 by this point, I had a lot of people who would do sort of whatever I said in uh, in the context of some sort of you know internet joke. And so I started sending out messages to all my friends saying, look, here's, um, here's what you do. Copy all my information, copy my picture, and when they kick me off, um, go get three Yahoo accounts and set up three pure evils. And, uh, and that's what I'll do. When, when I get kicked off, I'll set up three more pure evil accounts and pop them all up. And... Uh, and run them, you know, until they get kicked off. And for each of them, I'll put up three more. And uh, we called that process cloning. And people would actually, or people would just change their account over to a pure evil for a while, and then they'd change it back. But at this point, Friendster was being run by one guy, Jonathan Abrams, the guy who'd written the program. And maybe at that point, two or three other people, and in the next few weeks, it would bloom up into 10 employees. But basically, it was him staying up all night and deleting people. So he had, at this point, 
it was creeping towards a million people, which at that time was a huge big deal. So he had to wade through close to a million people to find fakesters and kick them off. And, and then he started getting employees, so they would start disappearing fairly regularly. But sometimes he couldn't find you. And some people would be half fake where they would change their profile into a real person at some times. And when they would send out a letter to be their character, they'd just switch into another character. People were going to really, you know, ridiculous lengths to keep up with this because we were really into it. We were having a really good time. And it was literally such a new thing. And it was so revolutionary and wonderful that we couldn't understand why the person who'd written it, this this ahead-of-its-time visionary thing, didn't understand that, didn't understand the potential of of what he had created, you know. He'd created this incredible social tool that could be used from the most shallow to the most deep um, purposes that you could think of. And what he wanted was... A very narrow thing, you know. Use this to find somebody to put your, you know, private parts together at some point or date or whatever. But basically to put your private parts together. So what we knew about this guy was what was on his profile. And at this point, we were getting (laughs) kind of pissy at at him. and, And we had a focus for our anger, Jonathan Abrams. So we started doing stuff like... You know, Jesus made a beautiful profile where he took Jonathan Abrams and photoshopped him into a woman and, you know, made up a whole profile for him. And and I would make around Halloween season, I would make a zombie Jonathan Abram profile. And we just generally, you know, made fun of him for being a stick in the mud. And for the most part, I was really ruthless to him. I basically stood on a hilltop and called him out every day. Every day with a new pure evil profile. I am back. John Abrams, you bastard. You thought you were going to wipe me out. There's no way you're going to wipe me out. I'm here to stay. I'm violating all your terms of conditions of being on here. And I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> Fuck you. And uh, great fun. Great fun. And there were points when, you know, you could look at the at somebody's page or look at the pages on Friendster and you would just see dozens and dozens of identical pure evils, you know, just popping up everywhere and everybody's friendless. Some people across their top, you know, 10 friends that they would have on their, their friend list. It would just be a row of red squares with pure evil written in them. It was awesome. So, Things are getting crazy at this point. You know, there's there's a trillion people on on Friendster. It's it's a day by day drama. Um, people are organizing like crazy, at, to the point of where um, there were people who were setting up websites that were recording the profiles of all the Friendsters who would get wiped out. So for posterity, and it would also keep a list of. Um, email addresses so you could find people once you got wiped out and you had to find all your friends. So all that information was like right at our fingertips. And at the same time, we, we set up a Yahoo group and um, 
formed a revolution basically around myself, Jesus, and Roy Batty, who wrote the Fakester Manifesto. And we all got together and decided, let's use the word Fakester. There were all sorts of different, there were Fraudster was a name people were using for us. We didn't really have a name for ourselves. So we literally got together in sort of a, a group on Yahoo and said, we'll be called Fakester. And we called ourselves the Fakester Revolution, the Borg Collective, what have you, and um, started open, just plotting using the Yahoo you know, group to, to plot and plan how to basically take over Friendster. The Fakester Manifesto by Roy Batty. Message. In light of recent developments and in defense of our right to exist in the form we choose or assume, I hereby scribe this credo. 1. Identity is provisional. Who we are is whom we choose to be at any given moment, depending on personality, whim, temperament, or subjective need. No other person or organization can abridge that right, as shape-shifting is inherent to human consciousness and allows us to thrive and survive under greatly differing circumstances by becoming different people as need or desire arises. By assuming the mantle of the other, it allows us, paradoxically, to complete ourselves. Every day is Halloween. 2. All characters are archetypal, thus public. There is no aspect of every person's personality that is not shared to some degree by all. Carl Jung called these archetypes and recognized, as did Joseph Campbell and many others, that these traits are universal. Famous people and fictional characters merely magnify facets of our own personalities or fantasies, and these larger-than-life identities are created as much by society at large as by the famous individuals identified with them or the authors who utilize them. Such personalities are iconic and universal and thus are created on a societal level by all of us. These public identities are very different and separate from private identities belonging to us all, and we are all free to use them and assume them as we wish. The price of fame or notoriety is that an identity, as a kind of public intellectual or emotional shorthand, becomes a form of public property and currency to be freely exchanged in our interactions and conversations. Art and media are forms of public discourse, and therefore are free and open forums for the unimpeded trading of these public identities. 3. Copyright is irrelevant in the digital age. The 20th century notions of copyright are in reality bounded by 19th century upper middle class notions of property in which a thing that is owned cannot belong to more than one person at a time. Since this antiquated notion has often ruthlessly extended to human beings, uh, such as slaves, women, and children, it's only a short sideways step to imagine the ridiculous notion that identity is also property. This concept short-sightedly ignores the concept of community assets and cannot easily wrap itself around non-material goods like ideas. How can one own the public perception of oneself? How the public perceives or internalizes the personality of a famous individual or a fictional creation is not necessarily that person's true character. It is instead a symbolic part of cultural consciousness and not property in the accepted sense of the word. It is important to note that ideas cannot be copyrighted, only manifestations of ideas. So even copyright law, as originally envisioned, takes into account the ephemerality and intangibility of concepts. 
the term intellectual property is a kind of logical dead end, as ideas supposedly generated by individuals are in truth the result of the sum of their exposure to the total ideas of a civilization. Signed, Roy Batty. Now at this point, Jonathan Abrams started getting um, a little bit wise to us and had employees. And the employees were doing stuff like getting smart and coming in and signing up to be, you know, pretending to be fake profiles and signing up to the Yahoo group to see what we were planning on doing so then they could undercut us. So then we started noticing very quickly that anybody who joined the Yahoo group was getting killed on on Friendster really quickly. So then we had to form another (laughs) subgroup that was where probably about a dozen of us who had started all of it would meet in our secret, you know, Masonic chambers to plot and plan. And then we would use the Yahoo group to actually put out misinformation that we would feed to Jonathan Abrams, who at this point nobody knew what the deal was with Jonathan Abrams. Nobody would heard any word from him. People were emailing him and writing letters to the Friendster address and, you know, nothing, nothing, no communication at all. Friendster was just sort of this faceless um, entity that just deleted people. And, um, and of course, then there was trouble where real celebrities were starting to get involved and they would get deleted because people would say, oh, that can't actually be, you know, Ashton Kusher or whoever it is. So he would get deleted. And um, uh, Roy Batty's Fakester Manifesto was just brilliant. It was basically talking about identity and how actually being of a fake identity on Friendster was probably a better idea than putting as much real information because that can get abused and taken advantage of. You know, you're 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 trusting the internet <laughs> with that information. We all know even back then we all knew how reliable that was. So at that point, um, you know, he'd, he'd written up this very intelligent dissection of what was going on in Friendster and what it was to be quote-unquote real and what it was to be fake and just basically a, a very, very good um, reason. He put forth a very good reason for us to exist and that how we could exist on Friendster in harmony with the people who wanted to date and the people who wanted to do other things. Now, at the same time, not all the fake people were jokers like us. They weren't all people playing a part or playing a role. Some of them were doing very useful things like um, they would, um, you know, have a neighborhood or have a certain part of a city or a certain bar and uh, so then all the people who would habituate that area could be friends with that bar. And, you know, it was just a little sub subculture. And, you know, you would see, like, gays and lesbians of blah, 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 Wisconsin. And these kids who were skateboarders would be, in, you know, in the Midwest. And that's when it started becoming very interesting and saying, look, these, it's self-organizing. People are self-organizing into all these little groups. It was fascinating. And as soon as they would self-organize this little community, Jonathan Abrams would come in and kick them off 
friendster in in a very unfriendly way just a, a cold shut you know you it was almost like you're knocked unconscious and thrown out the door well that you don't want to go back into that place after that happens you know it's just not very good um public relations and at the same time he had every right to do it because it was his club but you want people to come to your club <laughs> and sometimes you have to compromise but he wasn't compromising so around this time things started getting heady um I was being contacted by a French filmmaker guy who wanted to film a movie about this that ended with um, myself and Jonathan Abrams meeting, you know, and talking in person, which I was all for. I'm sure Jonathan Abrams wasn't all for it. Um, at one point, I had actually used the information on Jonathan Abrams' um, site to find his phone number and call him and leave a message on his machine saying, hi, this is Pure Evil, just going to tell you that I have your phone number. And the only reason I have your phone number is because you were 100% honest on your Friendster profile, and now I know your home phone number. You don't want me to know your home phone phone number. I know that for a fact, you know. You know, I don't know if the point was well taken or not. But anyway, around this point, you know... um, we start um, hearing from this uh, uh, reporter, Leslie Anderson, at the San Francisco Weekly. And uh, she's calling us all up. And she actually met Roy Batty in San Francisco because they were in the same town. And uh, she, I, I ended up having about a four-and-a-half-hour phone conversation slash interview with her. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I couldn't believe at this point that this little tempest in a tea kettle that was really fun was starting to get some national attention eventually there were articles in the chicago tribune the wall street journal don't quote me but i'm pretty sure the new york times too um wired magazine you know um pure evil was turning up in all of those as a ringleader so i was so proud of myself i was just like loving that shit because yeah, it, it was just a natural extension of like some of the performance art I'd been doing before that. And, and uh, come on, having a reporter call you and interview you for four hours? How awesome is that? I just got to fucking pompously blah, blah, blah for hours and hours and hours. So um, everything went fucking crazy when, when Leslie Anderson's story came out. That's what broke this open and once the story came out and started making its way around the internet it was all over i'm gonna actually um read you the first page of this i'll leave i'll have a link up so you can read the whole thing but i'll read the first the first page of it it was called attack of the smart asses and it featured a cover with jonathan abrams standing on top of a pile of computer monitors with a bunch of monitors that basically were supposed to be me they were these monster red they didn't say pure evil but they were red squares with teeth that were flying around him and attacking him and he was taking on the conan the barbarian stance on it of you know standing atop the mountaintop fighting these guys so at this point i'm just going apeshit so here we go um so uh leslie anderson uh, attack of the smart asses I'm sitting in a downtown San Francisco cafe with a man who won't tell me his name. 
Instead, he insisted I call him Roy Batty, leader of the Nexus 6 replicants in Blade Runner. He says coyly that he's in the 18 to 34 year old demographic and works as a, quote, writer, of what he won't say. Batty is a gaunt looking man with serious gray green eyes. He's probably in his early 30s. He's a coffeehouse philosopher who drops names like Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and French avant garde thinker Guy Debord, the way some guys of his age drop the names of indie rock bands. Batty doesn't want to give his real name because he believes that the concept of identity is quite elastic. Throughout history, he notes, human beings have loved to wear masks, adopting personas that were far different than their everyday ones. The malleable nature of selfhood is why he's so intrigued by Blade Runner, which, he says, he's seen more than 100 times. The batty replicant isn't quite human, but is so close that it causes a viewer to question what it means to be truly human. Similarly, the batty I'm drinking coffee with struggles with what it means to be really yourself. Who you are, he says, can change from moment to moment. Identity is provisional, Batty insists. It's fluid. I met Roy Batty on Friendster.com, the popular matchmaking website that's quickly become a social phenomenon among even people who aren't single. Friendster introduces you to the friends of your friends through a big interconnected database. You register for the free site, create a personal profile of pictures and descriptions of yourself, and invite your friends to do the same. Your page is linked to their pages, and their pages are linked to their friends' pages, and so on. When you look at other people's profiles, you can see how you are connected through mutual friends. Suddenly at your fingertips is an ocean of potential friends, lovers, and networking opportunities. That was the plan, at least. The site has attracted legions of young creative types, DJs, artists, media people, Burning Man freaks, and other hipsters, particularly in tech-savvy San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Not surprisingly, many of them went to great lengths to make their profiles unusual or above it all and drenched in irony. Some, like Batty, took it a step further by not being themselves at all. Batty and numerous other friendsters routinely violate the site's user agreement by creating fictional characters as profiles instead of, or in addition to, their real profiles. These fakesters portray themselves as anything from inanimate objects like the World Trade Center to celebrities like Paris Hilton to historical forces like war, which lists its profession as resolving disputes. Emboldened by their masks and often preferring the weird over the normal, fakesters are turning Friendster on its ear. They link to other users they've never met in real life, flouting the site's original intent of connecting people through verifiable personal relationships. Many compete to link to as many other users as possible so that their fictional characters function as social hubs in the Friendster network. Though they are some of Friendster's most ardent fans, many spend hours a day on the site. Fakesters do everything they can to create anarchy in the system. They are not interested in finding friends through prosaic personal ads, but through a big surreal party where Jesus, Chewbacca, and Nitrous are all on the guest list. To fakesters, phony identities don't destroy the social experience of Friendster, they enrich it. But fakesters aren't hosting this gig. Jonathan Abrams, a 33-year-old software engineer who founded Friendster to improve his own social life, is. And he abhors the phony profiles. He believes they diminish the site's worth as a networking tool and claims that fakesters' pictures, often images ripped off the web, violate trademark law. Abrams' 10-person Sunnyvale company has begun ruthlessly deleting fakesters and plans to eventually eradicate them completely from the site. But Roy Batty and the other fakesters are putting up a fight. 
They have formed the Borg Collective and struck back with online pranks and provocations designed to elude the censors and get Friendster officials to listen to them. They want Abrams to admit that, like it or not, Friendster has become more than a dating site. It's a vast electronic community, and a community that stamps out invention, Batty's group insists, is not only fascist and boring, but also stupid. Why give us the tools if you don't allow us to use them, Batty asks fervently. Prohibition never works. Abrams opened Pandora's box, now he has to deal with what came out of that box. And he's totally right, and he totally did. So... At this point, another part, I'm going to um, see if I can find it here. She pretty much goes and and interviews John Abrams, and she basically says, this guy's a dick. <laughs> this guy has no sense of humor. And, and uh, you know, when I talked to her and she described the meeting, you know, of course she wasn't going to come out and say how she felt, but it was just very clear that he was very kind of rude to her and she just not did not like him <laughs> at all. Um, oh, here's a part about me. <laughs> it's hard to know what percentage of Friendster users create Fakesters. The company doesn't track that. But you can tell from using the site that the number is high. Fakesters are everywhere. There are at least a dozen deaths and more than 50 Jesuses. There's Harold and there's also Maud. Anna Wintour and Snoop Dogg are there. There's Sacramento, Santa Cruz, and San Francisco. Gay pride and gay flag. The week that U.S. troops knocked off Uday and Quasi Hussein, the men's gruesome dead faces appeared together as a Friendster profile. Most fakesters are simply pranksters. Arthur Ratnick, a 35-year-old cook from Rochester, New York, joined Friendster shortly after it launched in March as a fakester named Pure Evil. His photo was a red box with evil written in it on black letters. Ratnick hooked up with the other fakesters with handles such as Big Corporation, Money, and George W. Bush, writing to them in the voice of his character. He then posted the exchanges to his bulletin board so his Friendster friends could follow his exploits, like a soap opera. And so here's a transcript of myself and Big Corporation talking. Big Corporation. Howard Dean is a good person and believes in fairness and honesty. Thus, he is an obstacle to my mission, global domination. He must be stopped. Pure evil. I wouldn't worry about it too much, old chum. A puppet head is a puppet head. If it is groomed like a newscaster, then it sucks from my teeth. Big Corporation. Excellent. My worry was misplaced. Thank you for the reassurance. Ratnik uses his fakester as a creative outlet and to connect with other people who share his bizarre sense of humor. In Rochester, when you do weirdo stuff, it's hard to get a reaction. It's a small city, says Ratnik, but on Friendster, there were people who knew what I was doing immediately and were willing to play along with it or expand on it completely in imaginative ways. Ratnick became so chummy with a fakester named Jesus, the nom de net of a young man in North Carolina, that he gave him the password so he could babysit the pure evil profile. Which is true. Jesus was a a good, good man. Jesus was a funny, funny fucking guy. Um, And, uh, you know, Jesus and I actually got together and would cause trouble. We'd say, I'd say, look, listen, we're going to get in a fight. And, uh, you know, it was pro wrestling for a while. I'm going to let you win. But, uh, you know, eventually, you know, I'm going to start coming back. And then, you know, we would fight each other to a deadlock and one of us would be ahead and have the other one on the ropes. And then we would just switch it around. And, you know, this time you get to win. And uh, next time you get to win. And uh, so... (laughs) So here's the description of Jonathan Abrams. And I think this... 
particular part of this article is what really got things going on Friendster. I mean, it was really going at this point because it was making newspapers and stuff. But once this came out, it really portrayed this guy as a douchebag. And it really made you want to just pick on him. You know, he had no sense of humor. All right. Jonathan Abrams is thin and fidgety, with salt and pepper hair and big blue eyes that are quick to narrow suspiciously. He sits in an office that has not one shred of decoration. To keep up with Friendster's explosive growth, Abrams often works far into the night, seven days a week. User demand continues to overload the new servers he and his staff keep adding. Abrams looks tired and is not easily amused. In early July, Friendster's affable chief operating officer, Kent Lindstrom told me the only fakesters that this company would likely remove would be the ones it received complaints about. On Friendsters, users can flag somebody's profile for the company to review and write comments about why it offended them. But Abrams shakes his head emphatically when I mention this. No, they're all going, he says, his voice steely. All of them. A native of Canada, and this is very unusual of Canadians, by the way, Abrams is a former Netscape programmer and entrepreneur who in 1999 founded and later sold a company called Hotlinks that compiled people's favorite websites into a public directory. Uh, He built Friendster last summer as a way to meet women. He likes to tell interviewers that the project was prompted by the breakup of a two-year relationship, but he doesn't like it when I probe for details of exactly who dumped whom. Isn't that a little personal, he snaps? Snaps. Abrams saw that his friends were using online dating sites to meet women, so he decided to try it, but internet hookups felt random and anonymous to him. He envisioned a matchmaking site that worked more like real life, in which friends introduce you to available people through connections in the high-tech sector. He raised about $400,000 in seed money and in July 2002 launched a private version for his friends to try out. By March, he had a free beta test version up and running and invited the public. Starting later this month, Friendster users will have to pay about $8 a month if they want to send email messages to users who aren't already their friend, a cheaper version of payment strategy that has worked well for other matchmating sites like Match.com, and that never happened. (laughs) There was never any, nobody ever paid anything for Friendster. Um, Abrams said he always knew Friendster would be more than just a dating site, but he doesn't share the fakester's vision of what it should be. Fakesters, he claims, expose him to possible lawsuits by companies like Disney, whose characters or images get co-opted by fakesters. He also thinks the fictional profiles screw up the networking effect. The whole point of Friendster is that you're connected to someone through mutual friends, not by virtue of the fact that you both like Reese's peanut butter cups, he says. Fakesters also create problems by adding friends indiscriminately in contests to see who can collect the most. Some, like God Almighty, have more than 1,000 friends, and by this time they had let you get more friends. Loading profiles with that many connections strains Friendster's already overloaded servers. So, at this point, we get the picture of Jonathan Abrams as this sort of lonely, um, humorless, weaselly guy who's had trouble getting girls and wants Friendster to get him a date that's it and everybody else is is getting in the way of this guy getting laid that's how it came out you know and at the same time um there were also being 
problems with Friendster, whereas he was not getting enough servers to keep up with the huge amount of people that were joining. And Friendster started slowing down to the point of almost being, you know, you couldn't use it. It would be so slow. And, uh, of course, this was all getting blamed on the Fakesters. But, you know, come on now. It was based on his success and him not physically keeping up with the success of the site. So all through this, um, I might mention there was this woman named Dana Boyd. And um, she was um, writing a lot of uh, papers for, I think, her college about Friendster and social networking. And uh, she sort of picked up our cause or was reporting on our cause. And uh, just as a little aside, now she's writing for the Huffington Post. And I was very happy to see that uh, she was writing in the tech se- section of the Huffington Post. So I have to say, go read Dana Boyd's column in Huffington Post. She's very smart and she's way ahead of the curve. All the stuff that she was saying back in the Friendster days, for the most part, was right and way ahead of its time. And she's been with social networking from the very beginning. She has very interesting things to say. Um, anyway, um, I remember sort of getting an email conversation with her and the reporter from San Francisco and Roy Batty and this filmmaker guy about, you know, what was going to become of all this, what we wanted to get out of it. And basically everybody's opinion, except for mine, was... Well, what we're doing is we're making a point and having fun doing it. You know, we're making a point in a melodramatic fashion and in a creative fashion. And, you know, we're making our point. And in in the end, we're going to lose because it's his website and he can do whatever he wants. He can kick us all off. Well, I was not of that opinion at all. I was like, of course, he's not going to win. And. This is a weird thing about me, and this is when I know I'm right. (laughs) You know, there's times when you think you're right. There's times when you know you're right. But then there's other times where I can just, you know, you get that clear sight into the future. And the thing that I saw about Friendster and the way it was all set up and Jonathan Abrams and all of it, the whole situation, he could not win. There's no way he could win because he was fighting everybody there were very very few people on friendster who could give a shit whether anybody was real or not if they hated if they didn't want anything to do with pure evil they didn't have to be my friend they didn't have to have fake profiles on there they could do what he wanted they could use it as a small little group of friends if you wanted to so by that point i was like he's going to have to give in to his users, his consumers, the people he depends on for his existence, he's going to have to give in to our demands. Or we're just not going to come, and somebody's going to come along and do it, and he's going to die out. That's all there is to it. And at this point, he's starting to get smart and think, maybe I should sell Friendster. And so um, this one guy who was an executive at Google was looking at Google was looking at on buying it, and... Um, all of a sudden, all these executive, like this executive from Google, shows up on Friendster and makes friends, asks Pure Evil to be his friend. And uh, I thought he was fake at first until I found out no, he's in fact his profile picture was him on it was what wasn't him on his yacht. I imagine he was in there somewhere, but like an aerial shot from a helicopter of his yacht. 
And, uh, you know, he actually wrote me and asked me what would you want us to do if we, you know, not asking me to tell him what to do, but saying, you know, what what do you think would make this better if, if, if this were not to be Jonathan Abrams anymore? And we got together and we told him, and uh, it was just very interesting. So at, at that point, I think Jonathan Abrams was trying to think, I'm going to sell this and just make a lot of money and walk away from it and be able to sleep at night. And um, so at this point, yeah, it's starting, you know, it's starting to get kind of sucky on Friendster. Um, you can be a fake profile. Your lifespan was probably about two months at the most if you kept a low, low profile and didn't cause too much trouble or piss anybody off. You could be there for about two months before someone would find you and boot you off. But if you're a troublemaker like me, uh, your shelf life was way lower. And, um, you know, people were chir- now making websites where you could go out and basically you would say you would put in a number like 56 and it would generate 56 profiles with a random picture of someone that they got off the web and you would have 56 friendster accounts that you could turn into pure evil if you wanted to um, just by going to this website and signing up for them so people were really exploiting the whole system to you we were going to full war with friendster and there was no way they were going to win so about this time um, all of the, the, you know, maybe dozen or so original fakesters get an email from Tom. And uh, I think you guys know who Tom was. He's your first friend that you would have on MySpace. And this guy Tom writes us and says, Hey, my, fr- my friend just wrote this website called MySpace. And it's going to be like Friendster except we're going to let you do whatever you want. And as a matter of fact, we're going to ask you what you want to do, and we're going to keep adapting it so you can do that. And I said, well, that sounds like an awesome idea, Tom. I'm going to go check it out. So I went and signed up for an account on MySpace. At the same time, I was checking out all the other, there were, you know, all these other ones popping up. Uh, uh, Another one that was really good was tribe.net, and I would sign up on those. But when you could do what you want, it kind of wasn't as fun at that point. Now, um, MySpace, when I first signed up for MySpace, there were literally about 3,000 people on MySpace, I, I, I think, or, or 300, or there were some, I don't know what the decimal point was, but there were very few people, and they were all in um, Singapore, and they were all about 15 years old, and they were all you know speaking in their native language and and interacting and i wrote tom and said hey you know this is a pretty neat thing actually you know who the other person who was who was on myspace literally was like literally my first friend on god damn why didn't i remember this one of my first friends on myspace that was in america that was an actual other other person that i could be friends with was tila tequila was on there and she literally that's how she made herself famous was she made friends with everybody on myspace she was there from the beginning and she made friends with everybody for about a week i was able you could you could write her an email and she would email you back but i would 
wasn't really too interested in being friends with Tequila. She just seemed like a a girl who wanted a lot of friends on MySpace or whatever. That so, you know, MySpace of course became MySpace. It it, it blew up, and and they did do exactly that. They they began to adapt it. You know, you could set up your band there. You could put music on there. You could do all this. You could you could change your profile around to to sort of mess with the HTML on it. And as a result, it became humongous. And guess what happened to Friendster? Nothing. No, but everybody left Friendster and went to MySpace and started enjoying themselves. And Friendster sat. And I kept going over there to Friendster to wait till the point where I knew I had won. Because I had made an oath that one day I would either walk in victory through um, Friendster as a fake profile who could exist, you know, without having without the risk of being kicked off, or <laughs> I would walk through the charred and smoldering ashes of Friendster. And that's what I totally expected to do, was walk through the smoldering ashes. And what turned out happening is both, which was just fucking awesome by me. What happened was, after a while, Friendster, people stopped going to Friendster, and a year went by, I never signed into Friendster. We were sort of done. We'd made our point, and we thought, well, (laughs) we killed, we helped kill Friendster. But really, Friendster died a suicide <laughs> you know it was generally it was Jonathan Abrams fault and he it's his responsibility alone for that site failing um, but about a year later I get an email from Friendster saying hey <laughs> we noticed that you had been deleted we were wondering if you know you would like to have your account reinstated, your original Pure Evil account. The first one, the very first one that I had tried to make friends with John Abrams. And I said, why, yes, I would like that reinstated. They reinstated it, and I went back to Friendster and contacted everybody I could and put it up in public as much as now I walk in victory through your stupid goddamn website, and I'll take this walk, and then I'll fucking walk on out of here onto MySpace where they've done it right and too little too late but thanks you know and by that time somebody else than Jonathan Abrams definitely owned Friendster at that point and to this day Friendster still exists in sort of a niche way but at this point you know myself and the other fakesters were wondering why in the hell was he so adamant about getting rid of us? Really? Was it really because he wanted, you know, was a control freak? Uh, or a fascist? Or just a stick in the mud? Roy Batty, of course, being the intelligent guy that he is, was starting to say, no, I think, really, probably what motivated him was that with real information, and uh, it turned out Roy Batty was also uh, was worked in the lobby. Uh, he was either a lobbyist. He wrote propaganda, basically. He wrote for a lobbyist lobbyist group or an advertising group. And um, he said, "What I think was really going on here was there's 
you know, there's really no way, you know, nobody was going to pay for Friendster. There was really no way of making money. There was no income model for it to follow. It was just, it was not making money. It was costing money to run that. And, uh, you know, no model for making money had been set up. I think Roy Batty was right about this, that it was an information gathering scheme. All right, you have people giving their real information to be on the site, and you have a good story of the, the, the CEO being sort of like a lonely guy. He's nerdy, he works a lot, and doesn't get out much, and wants to get a date and form this thing. But in the bottom line, the big money to be made would be, to, would be selling this massive amounts of, of demographic information and, and to people who wanted to advertise or to find out what young, you know, 20-something people were talking about and interested in and wanted to buy. I think he hit the nail right on the head there. And that's why he was probably so adamant about getting rid of us because we destroy, we would destroy that that possibility or at least we would um, vastly dilute it. But at the same time, you don't want to tell people that you have your your social network sites to gather information on to sell to companies because then they're not going to want to come there or they're not going to want to give you their real information, which you in fact can't sell. So, you know, then you'd have to go and sift through everything and decide what's real and what's not. Now, MySpace, on the other hand, now they, they tried to sell advertising and stuff like that, but they did not seem that interested in getting as much of uh, any more of your information than you wanted to put on there you know you could put as much or as little information on it and work it as as however you want to do and i don't know i i i think i'm not sure that um my space was ever profitable either but it was very i guess successful from a social networking site for sure so that's where we finally come to Facebook and why I won't be your friend on Facebook. You know, Facebook started showing up during the days of MySpace. Another one called Orkut started showing up. And they were kind of the snobby ones. Facebook started out being just you had to be in college. And it was a college networking site. And uh, Orkut was just fucking snobby. You had to be invited to Orkut by somebody. You could not just go and sign up. So you had to be a person of quality. For those reasons, I wasn't really interested in either of them. And at that point, to be honest with you, I was about done with social networking. Uh, Once again, my roommate who got me into Friendster was really, really into Facebook. And a lot of my friends who weren't be on MySpace or who were on MySpace but didn't use it a lot and were about my age, you know, older, you know, pushing 40 at that point, started using Facebook and they would start coming up to me and go, boy, I really like this Facebook. Yeah, it's really great. It's not like MySpace where you go there and it looks like, you know, somebody's vomited all over their page and put bling all over it and it's all full of 14-year-old girls and child molesters and stalkers and goddamn bands who won't leave you alone and all that. You know, MySpace was the unwashed masses. It was loud, gaudy, and, you know, not a very, you know, adult place. And to them, um, Facebook was. 
that immediately turned me off to that immediately for one here were all my friends who um and shit this reminds me i started to make this point but i then i trailed off um when i know i'm right when i see something crazy going on that i just know that i've got the inside on and maybe it's the same with everybody else when they get this way but with the friendster thing I knew, you know, how it was going to end. I, there was only one way in my mind that it could possibly end, that it could possibly play out. And that's how it did play out. And when I get that sure of something, I know I'm right when I talk to people about it and I tell them what I think about it and they look at me with a blank look on their face that says, I'm not hearing any of this or whatever Mr. fucking tinfoil hat. That's when I know I'm right. And I get this look a lot when I talk about Facebook these days. But it's, you know, I'm starting to see in, you know, things that are backing up my opinion of Facebook. And so here we go. This is why I won't be your friend on Facebook. Facebook of all the social network sites is the most successful one because it is the most evil one. It has, they've really figured out in a great way how to appeal to somebody's just innate narcissism and in doing so to draw as much information about them as they possibly can, you know, in the, and they do it in very seductive and useful ways. You know, like um, one of the first, you know, and, and, and my roommate was after me. He got to get on Facebook. And I said, you know what? I'm going to set up a Facebook account. Maybe I'll set me up a pure evil account, though. How about that? And then if I don't like it, I can fuck with them because I was already biased against Facebook. So I went to set up my pure evil account and quickly found out that I couldn't do it. You know, they, they check ahead of time. To make sure that you have a real name or a quote unquote real name. They have no way of confirming it's your real name, but you know, to make sure there's no pure evils or Johnny Depp's or Jack Mayhoff's or, you know, um, just obviously fake or non real people. So uh, I, I pick Arthur Ratnick. And at this point, um, way back when I started doing performance art, I always thought. It's better when you do things like that to have another persona. So I've always kept the name Arthur Ratnick and use that for artistic stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like a believer of those, you know, no, the old, the tribal people who believe that your identity, your, you know, your real name and your identity is something pretty valuable and can get diluted. So I like creating other identities in order to do some of the other things and also to keep when I want to <laughs> get into trouble to keep my real identity out of hot water. So um, I, I set up my, my Facebook account as Arthur Ratnick and, you know, all of a sudden a bunch of people hi in high school who w made friends with a couple of other, you know, found me through other friends and remembered that, you know, I was called Aardvark Ratnick in high school too. So they said, oh, it's Chris. So all of a sudden, through the podcasting community, I had a bunch of friends on Facebook. But at this point, I was only setting it up so I could have a group because 
as I was setting up my Facebook account, I realized very quickly how dangerous, you know, truly dangerous Facebook is to you as an individual user, especially to someone who's not paying attention or who doesn't care. Um, I mean, if you're on Facebook, you've noticed they, they get your password into your, into your um, email account and grab all your emails and send out friend requests to your friends or look to see if those emails line up with an email of somebody already on, on Facebook and then say, oh, hey, you want to be friends with your friend? That's the useful use, and it's a very useful use. But in the same time, demographically, that's linking, you know, it's creating a, a, a link of people who people's relationships using a, a, um, an email address. Um, and, you know, here, and all right, I, I can't remember where I read this, but your name, just your name to a company that um, collects data. Yeah, it's worth a buck or something like that, you know. So if they get a list of 500 names, that's worth 500 bucks. But you start attaching stuff to that name, like what college they went to, and um, what kind of job they have, where they live, um, what age they are, all that. The more you start adding to it, the more that shades in what that person is like, the more that information becomes worth. So, you know, depending on how much information you put on Facebook, your name starts becoming worth sometimes, yeah, maybe 10 bucks every time they sell it. And they could be selling it hundreds of times. Multiply that by the number of people on Facebook. Now, they say they don't do this, but there's nothing, nothing to prevent them from doing this. And, and, and they've been caught doing this. And all that personal information, including they get the passwords to webcams and stuff like that, all that stuff is not supposed to be shared with anybody. But by the same point, you have Facebook, which is a company that's probably full of 20-something employees and stuff. And I know for a fact, for a fact, 100% fact, that those employees are not allowed to access that information or whatever and could get fired for accessing it, I don't think there's anything stopping them from doing it, you know, except their own moral compass. And I think there's a lot of people who just would have no problem doing it. I would have a hard time not using that information to my um, own purposes or for my own fun or interest, you know. I mean, that, that, the temptation is there, and don't think that nobody's going to yield to it. There's already, I mean, you can already go and download off the Pirate's Bay all everybody's information off Facebook. There, somebody had, you know, a program that went and took everybody with public information, took all their information and put it into one file, and you can download it on the Pirate's Bay. Name all their information off their page. Um, so there you have it. It's just very it's 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 going to end in some sort of uh class action lawsuit i could tell you that right now so every piece of information on my facebook account is completely false and almost a uh, 180 degrees from the truth 
because I don't want them to gather any kind of accurate demographic picture for me. They can, I, I, I don't mind if they're going to gather demographics, but you know what? They're going to get some fucking skewed demographics. It's just like when I'm walking through the mall and someone goes, would you like to take a survey? Yes, I would like to take a survey. When they call me up, would you like to take a survey? Why, yes, I would love to take a survey. And I lie my ass off. Lie, 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 lie on every answer. I fuck up the results. Fuck them up. And that's what you should do too. Why would you want to give people accurate information about that stuff so they can make money selling you some useless shit? Give them the wrong information. Same with with Facebook. I, I, and, and if I start hooking up with my real friends, that still makes a network that is viable for them to sell something to or to use. So I don't want to give them even that. I don't want to give them a list of my friends and, you know, people that might have something in common. So I I don't want to have a list of friends on Facebook and I will let people right now I have my roommate Scott and Scott's son as friends and my friend Vargas Pike on Facebook. Vargas Pike is my friend because he's using a fake name. Right away, if you have a fake name, you can be my friend on Facebook. All right, we're, you know, we're fine. I wouldn't mind having a whole group of people with fake names on Facebook. You have to be tricky. <laughs> you have to be Arthur Ratnick or Vargas Pike, you know. You can't be um, Amanda Huggenkiss or something like that. So, that is why I won't be your friend <laughs> on Facebook. I don't want to give goddamn Facebook the satisfaction because they are the evil culmination of everything that Jonathan Abrams started with Friendster. And and unlike Friendster, they have done it in such a seductive manner that, that makes grown people with kids um, go on there and act like, you know, 13-year-old kids in front of a mirror. It just plays to your narcissism and self-involvement so much that, you know, and it will get you to sit there and like things. All right, think about that. I like Oreos. Well, awesome. You're just telling the Oreo people to stick an Oreo ad up on on your site. And all right, well, maybe that allows you to use Facebook for free. But it's just, to me, it's gross. It's gross. <laughs> and it, it will be used for nefarious purposes. And someday this will all come out. Mark my words. So when you ask me to be friends with you on, on Facebook, don't be offended if I say no. It's, it's not anything personal. I probably really want to be friends, and I don't want to hit ignore and make you think, oh, why are you ignoring me? Instead, now I can say, go listen to my podcast called Why I Won't Be Your Friend on Facebook, and it'll tell you everything. So there you have it. It's a long fucking story, and at least I got to tell it once. I hope I didn't, uh, I hope I wasn't too rambling and brain damaged about the whole thing, but, uh, I didn't really... I, someday it'll be a book or a movie. If it's a movie, it's going to be like Tron. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but uh, until the next Storytellers, which, um, 
you know, I, I imagine it'll probably feature uh, Scott and I, or um, um, and maybe it'll feature one of you. If if anybody has an incredibly long, complicated but interesting story or enlightening story that you know you need to get off your chest or is would be handy to have in one place, so you don't have to keep telling every goddamn person that wants to know whatever this goddamn story. Um, spin it by us. Maybe it'll end up being a two true freak storyteller. So for two true freaks, this is Chris signing off and I'll see you on Facebook groups, but I won't see you on my Facebook profile. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You, you know, you know my name. You know my name. Look up the number. You know my name. That's right. Look up the number. Oh, you know, you know, you know my name. You know. You know, you know my name. <laughs> you know my name. Ba-ba-ba-bum. Look up the number. You know my name. Look up the number. You, you know, you know my name, baby. You, you know, you know my name. You know, you know my name. Visit our website at 2 
twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.